the revolution will not be televised, but it is being digitized right here on Digital Village. Hi, this is Rick Allen. And I'm Leilani Albano. On Digital Village, we're bringing you stories about the Internet and technology and how they're shaping culture, along with every other aspect of our lives. The digital revolution is indeed awe-inspiring, but can also be used for nefarious purposes. We're here to help prevent some of those abuses. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. So, on with the show. The CDC's decision to cut the number of days a person infected with COVID must quarantine from 10 days down to five has befuddled many as U.S. hospitals continue to struggle with the rush of COVID-19 patients seeking treatment. Many of those hospitalized have shown to be infected by the highly transmissible Omicron variant, which took over as the dominant strain just months ago. Although the Omicron is thought to be milder than the Delta, the variant has proven to be no less dangerous. Those with underlying health issues and the unvaccinated are still susceptible to serious illness and death from the disease. The future of coronaviruses are uncertain as new mutations continue to reproduce vaccine-resistant strains. While medical experts continue to develop vaccines, many agree that sound public policy measures are also key to ending the pandemic. With us to talk about the issue is Edward Jones-Lopez, assistant professor at the USC Keck School of Medicine. He spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano. Welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. The CDC's recommendation to shorten the isolation period to five days and not 10 days after testing positive for COVID has grabbed headlines. Your thoughts? This fits in an overall assessment, many of these recommendations that were developed in the first few months of this pandemic, in large part, are no longer applicable. And that is because of several reasons. One is, obviously, we've learned a lot about this virus, how it's transmitted, people at risk, and so on. But also because the availability of the vaccines have really changed the epidemiological situation in such a way that many of the recommendations that were uh, developed in an era with no population immunity and high rates of infection and mortality and hospitalization as seen in in multiple countries early on the epidemic made uh, recommendations very pertinent. There really are no updated recommendations on how to best deal with both the individual level and the public health level of this virus. So relating to this shortening of of the isolation period, does that rule also apply for people who have received the booster shots? Once you don't have any more symptoms, the infectiousness in essence drops very quickly uh, after the peak of symptoms. An important debate has been throughout the epidemic, after having COVID or being exposed, when is it okay to rejoin society? And that has changed over time, again, based on the um, knowledge we've accumulated. Currently, with so many people who have been vaccinated, there's a lot of people who are being either exposed or even infected, meaning they have a breakthrough infection. 
And that infection is either symptomatic or non-symptomatic. That's uh, a big separator right now. If you have an asymptomatic infection, the latest recommendations from the CDC is even if you test positive, but you do not have symptoms, an isolation of about five days should be enough. And that's based on, again, the accumulated knowledge that after five days, you're no longer infectious. That's good to know (laughs) that these new recommendations are based on a review of the knowledge that we've accumulated since COVID, because this latest announcement, at least in the media, has not gone down very well in the news as well as in late night comedy sketches. In some ways, I would have to say that it has garnered a bit of a mistrust of the CDC and the recommendations. Do they understand that that's how it's being perceived? And if so, what do you think the explanation is for that kind of mistrust? An axiom in science is that as much as possible, we want to make recommendations to the public that are based on data, not so much an opinion. The accumulation and analysis of data obviously takes time. Now, the other element is even if and when we come up with a particular recommendation, new data could change that first or second recommendation. And that has happened in several occasions during this pandemic. I would say one of the famous ones is precisely this issue of who should wear masks and when. You may remember early on, our healthcare authorities were talking about using masks only in people who had symptoms. And that was, in essence, an extrapolation from other diseases. And again, as mentioned, in other diseases, typically the initiation of symptoms marks the beginning of infectiousness for most of the infectious diseases that are transmissible. In the case of COVID, I believe it was two or three months into the epidemic, we discovered this enormous issue of pre-symptomatic transmission. And when we first discovered this, and it took a few months to figure this out, obviously, the recommendation of using masks in everyone changed. And that caught a lot of people by surprise, and it created a lot of confusion. But again, the only thing that happened there is the accumulation of data showing that the cogent thing to do was to use masks regardless of symptoms. A lot of these decisions, or most of these decisions, what they're trying to do really is establish a very fine balance between not being too conservative versus being irresponsible. So a public health decision of releasing someone from infectiousness is a major, major decision that can impact you know, millions, if not tens of millions of people and their livelihoods and their family life and their work and you know, transportation, et cetera, et cetera. You know? So when keeping some, someone or millions of people in isolation for even one extra or two extra or three extra days obviously has an enormous impact on many, many different activities. So the CDC's recommendation was announced at the same time that the Omicron variant has really started taking off. Can you tell us about the Omicron? Where did it come from and why is it so transmissible? Just before the Omicron was first reported, and this was done, I believe it was on November 24th, 
It was detected in a couple of countries in the southern part of Africa. It was uh, first described or reported by South Africa. And very quickly, the concerning part was that they identified several dozen mutations in the spike protein, which is really that protein that you can see in the pictures looking like the spike protein, which is the famous one in the pictures. The concerning part of it is that there's some data that particular protein is related to the infectiousness of the virus, but much more concerningly, that is the area of the virus that these vaccines that we developed early on in the epidemic are targeting. So the immunity we generate with basically all of the vaccines that are out there is precisely immunity against recognizing that spike protein. So if the spike protein has enough mutations that is sufficiently different to the prior virus, then there is this possibility of breakthrough infections, which is exactly what we've seen. Talk about the symptoms, because for many, it's like, well, you know what? It's kind of like the flu, but it's not as bad as the flu. Should we be concerned about the Omicron and its transmissibility if we're not really feeling it? So what this Omicron has done through these two measures of increased transmissibility and escaping immunity generated vaccines, it has created, you know, millions of breakthrough infections. However, shortly after it was first discovered, what we also found is that this Omicron variant seems to be less virulent. And this is something that is not completely unexpected. We scientists like to think of these bugs as intelligent beings. And what you need to think of is what is in their best interest to survive. And what is in their best interest is to infect, increase transmission, and to infect as many hosts as possible. But in that movement towards improving their transmissibility, frequently there's an evolutionary cost to that. And in this case, or often, what happens is the evolutionary cost they pay is that they create a virus that is less virulent. Again, going back to what is in their interest, if these viruses were very, very transmissible and very deadly, in essence, what they would do is they they would kill all the hosts around them. And by killing too many hosts, they basically go into extinction. So it's really at that level of evolutionary interest from the viral perspective. And the price they paid this particular variant, Omicron, to be more transmissible is likely measured in it being less virulent. It's causing less severe disease and less deaths. Can you tell us what the symptoms are of the Omicron? And while we're talking about its virulence, is it necessarily less virulent among populations that have pre-existing conditions and lower immune systems? We do know, based on animal studies and some experimental methods in, in cells in the lab, that this Omicron variant is indeed less virulent and it tends to cause less inflammation of the lungs and is more prone to, for example, infect upper airway tissues. And it's likely that that's one major reason why, despite being more infectious, it's it's causing less disease. However, this is not a clear-cut issue because you have to think that, uh, yes, it's more transmissible, and yes, it's likely to be less virulent, but there's also a lot of vaccine-induced immunity at the population level. So that's one part. The second part you're asking about is the symptoms. The symptoms 
from this virus, it sounds, based on several studies, I'm thinking Omicron, are slightly different than previous variants. But I would not put too much weight on that because sometimes it's very difficult for the public to understand that, you know, a presentation is fundamentally different from the next one. And what I would say is all of these viruses, including COVID, present very similar symptoms, and this includes the flu and the common cold viruses. So I would not emphasize too much on trying to figure out if this is COVID versus Omicron versus some other virus, almost exclusively based on symptoms. It's, it's really very difficult, if not impossible. So ultimately, the other part that we have understood is that although there is this sense that Omicron is less virulent, it's still is incredibly dangerous in, for example, unvaccinated populations. There's no reason to believe it's fundamentally different from previous strains in the unvaccinated. And in some groups of even vaccinated individuals, and those groups are include the older individuals, 65 and older, and in particularly those who have a very suppressed immune systems. And these two populations, which can be a significant number. The importance here is that despite receiving two vaccines and now a third booster dose, they are not able to mount, develop a robust enough immunity to defend themselves against these viruses. So even in those who are vaccinated still have these risk factors, you have to be very, very careful because uh, what we know from the data is that even Omicron, can cause very severe disease and even some deaths. So, you know, we're looking at people who who may be severely impacted by the effects of the variant itself. But what about just the hospitalization rates for those who aren't necessarily being impacted directly by the effects of the variant? How much weight are they putting on hospitalization rates? And really the ability for healthcare workers to keep up with these high infectious rates? Frequently, people are admitted for non-COVID-related reasons. It can be completely random, like an accident or a heart attack or, you know, any other reason. And in the screening we do before patients are admitted to a hospital, we have a lot of positive results, you know. And there's a name for this, and we call them incidental COVID cases. And in the U.S., the way the systems were put in place, from the very beginning, these incidental COVID cases are being reported as hospitalized COVID cases, you know, and sometimes it's very difficult to tease apart how much of the hospitalizations that are occurring now and even before are really related due to COVID itself causing the hospitalization versus COVID being found as an incidental finding, you know? So that's number number one point. The, number, the second point, which is really the important one, is despite this limitation of the data that is applicable to the U.S., it is quite clear now from other countries and even in the U.S. that this variant is leading to much less hospitalizations and deaths than other variants. What I was getting to is the fact that even though people aren't getting hit directly by the Omicron, that just the fact that 20% of the whole healthcare workforce is out due to infection and then that is then creating a pressure on hospitals because now you have less workers because they're being infected. Yeah, that is correct. I I didn't go into that, but that is obviously very true also. And I would, uh, I don't have the data 
exact data to suggest this, but I think if I were to choose what is causing more of an impact in the current situation, is it the first point or the second one? I would say the second one, uh, just based on what I've heard and read. There's a fair number up to, I've seen numbers in the 20 and 30 percent range of nurses and doctors being out of the workforce right now because of infections. But I would say this is also true for other areas. You know, in schools, for example, a lot of teachers are infected and not coming to work and so on. And that has to do, going back to our prior discussion, that has to do with, you know, which is the best way we can, in essence, maintain the society open in a safe way, knowing that this is a virus that is really among us. It's transmitting like wildfire. There's hundreds of thousands, if not millions of cases every day, and it's causing very little severe disease. What we were Mm -hmm. trying to do in the very beginning of the epidemic of, you know, separating humans and closing the house and humans together in a relatively small space is likely no longer to apply because this virus is mutating towards at least this particular Omicron. Other variants, future variants, and there's going to be some, may come back to being very virulent. We don't know that yet. But this particular Omicron is uh, acting as any other respiratory virus that is of concern, and it's important to measure and understand how prevalent it is, but it's not, in essence, uh, wiping out the entire populations at the same time. To adjust the recommendations to a new reality, and that adjustment takes weeks to months to implement and to make sure it's a safe thing to do. So at the same time this is all happening, we're seeing now a scarcity of test kits as well as new CDC face masking guidelines that include the higher quality N95s and the KN95s. How do these two things impact people's ability to successfully fight Omicron in lower-income communities and as well as communities of color? The testing issue is, is very complicated, and it would require almost an entire hour just to discuss that. And maybe we can leave it aside for now. I would like to first comment on the masks. The idea behind the recommendations of using uh, KN95s or N95s is really because because of this hypertransmissibility of the virus. You know? the, from the beginning, we've known that masks work to interrupt transmission of this particular virus, like several other uh, respiratory viruses that we use masks for. In hospitals, for example, transplant patients use masks all the time. And it's the idea is to try and uh, protect ourselves against you know this particular virus and many others. You know? The issue with airborne transmission has to do with the size of the particles. So early on, what we found is that this particular virus is transmitted mostly through what we call droplets. There's two sizes of droplets, large and small. It doesn't matter. And but there's another size that is a completely different level of complexity, which are called aerosols. And those are the particles that are so, so small, you don't see them, and you can breathe them. So most of the recommendations initially were based on this idea that most of the transmission was through droplets, COVID, I'm saying. But we did discover that in some cases, we didn't know exactly how many, and if it's an individual level issue or a viral issue, meaning some viruses may aerosolize more than others, or is it 
someone who aerosolizes more than others. But the point is that there was a small proportion of, of people who could transmit uh, through aerosols. And the aerosol transmission is another level of complexity for several reasons. One, the surgical masks, the one we've been promoting for so many months, in essence are useless. Why? Because they don't protect you in a sealed way. The aerosols, basically, their risk is that these are breathable particles. You can breathe them in as you breathe air. And the surgical masks or the bandanas or the cloth masks that a lot of people still use are not good enough. They don't protect, uh, provide a seal that is good enough to avoid transmission. So the current recommendations are, in essence, reacting to the data that this particular virus, uh, the Omicron virus, is much more transmissible than the previous one. It was easier then when I could get a cloth mask at the the van that was parked in the corner of the grocery store. And even though it didn't promise me the best protection, it was better than nothing. It prevented me probably from getting sicker. But now with these requirements, I mean, who's going to fund that? What good are these measures if we can't get it to communities that need it the most? I would argue this is an excellent example of, you know, this balance that we were talking about before. There was a debate early on about, you know, should should we be recommending routine use of N95s from the very beginning? Once we discovered this virus can aerosolize in a small proportion of people, you know, that could have led to a recommendation of using N95s. But there was a discussion, a decision that was made to say, no, wait a second, let's not go to that level of difficulty because surgical masks, cloth masks may be enough, you know, or should be enough for the enormous majority of people. What this variant has caused is clearly, so it's so, so transmissible. It's being compared to, for example, measles virus. You know, the measles virus is among the most transmissible viruses known to, my, to humans, and it's now being compared to that. So now it's a different situation. There's different data and the epidemiological data has changed so much that the only uh, recommendation or the best recommendation to make now is to change the prior recommendation of using masks, even low-quality masks, because this virus is so, so transmissible. What we want to do here is try to strike the right balance between difficulty, costs, and efficacy. Now, that is not an easy one to do. In terms of natural immunity... Is natural immunity of someone who had COVID effective in fighting off the Omicron variant? The general principle is that natural immunity leads to incomplete or partial protection that is somewhat short-lived compared to vaccines. Now, as it relates to your particular question, we're living in a very somewhat optimistic period right now precisely because we have a basic protection that is provided from vaccines that is allowing us to withstand this onslaught of viral infections without dying with the added benefit of getting a quote-unquote booster or the equivalent of a booster infection from these natural infections. And it's not only a booster, it's also a booster that is specific to Omicron, which is the virus that is causing so much trouble. So there's a lot of people, a lot of epidemiologists and scientists right now that are thinking or we're thinking that this is actually going to lead likely 
to, uh, at least momentarily, to a level of uh, herd immunity that we've been talking about. And that herd immunity is going to be not only for uh, previous variants through vaccines, but also an Omicron-specific herd immunity, which is obviously very, very good. So you're saying we're going to get herd immunity from from the present vaccines that we're, we have? I mean, how, how are we going to get herd immunity when we have this, it seems like a very steady, what, 30 to 40 percent population that is refusing to get vaccinated? This is complicated because the herd immunity threshold, it's a threshold that depends on the transmissibility of the virus. That is what, that's one of the variables that determines what is the threshold we need to hit to get to herd immunity. Uh, and based on the early data, the original variants, the herd immunity threshold we had estimated was around 70%, 75%. Yeah? But the herd immunity, for example, for measles yeah, is about 90%, 92%. Why? Because measles is much more transmissible, and it impacts the calculation of the herd immunity threshold. So that herd immunity threshold, assuming the original calculations still hold, may have changed now because of Omicron, if we keep the 75% herd immunity level, the combination of vaccinations plus the Omicron infections are likely going to get us above that threshold. And that's why I'm talking about that this could have, at a population level, this current wave of massive wave of infections could ultimately lead to at least short-lived herd immunity in large parts of the country. This is a the added effect of vaccines plus infections, natural infections, in the unvaccinated, you lose that baseline vaccine-induced immunity, which is obviously part of the issue on why unvaccinated people are still getting very, very sick and ending up in the hospital and dying. Is the booster effective against Omicron and why? Remember, before Omicron, there were good amount of data showing that the two-dose series or a single dose in the case of Johnson Johnson was good enough to avoid the outcomes we're most concerned with, which are hospitalizations and deaths. And we had data that it was preventing new infections even, so the, uh, the weakest of the objectives we wanted, you know, which is to prevent infections. What Omicron did, it exposed that these initial vaccines were not protecting us against infection, and that's where these breakthrough infections come in. So what happened is we looked at the data, and we looked at the immunity over time conferred from vaccines after about five or six months drops to a level that a breakthrough infection is easier to occur, in essence, you know? and it's really based on these data that are lab-based data, looking at levels over time, plus the number, the sheer number of cases occurring, infections, I'm saying, that the recommendation of boosters are as important as the initial two vaccines. And that is the current recommendation, that if we want to avoid not only people becoming very sick, but in particular infections, new infections, a booster is very, very important. Because the last two vaccines weren't really protecting against breakthroughs. In other words, we're, it, it, it's another way of saying here we are with vaccine-resistant variants. Yes, but 
but it's not unheard of. And, you know, one of the big questions we had in the beginning is how often will we need to vaccinate? You know, before we didn't have the data, and now it's looking as, looking as, it's, it may change, as if this is going to be similar to what we do with the flu, which is, in essence, a yearly vaccination. And it's not impossible that in the future we will have to get a COVID vaccine every year. But that is, I think, still a speculative statement because we don't really know what's going to happen. And this virus has surprised us several times. Okay. So we've been concentrating so much on Omicron, but, you know, the Delta is not that distant of a memory. What is happening? Yeah, so that's interesting. What we've seen from this particular epidemic or pandemic, and this is something we've seen in other diseases that are transmissible, is that a new variant um, becomes the predominant variant. And it can happen within a few weeks even, or a few months, where the new variant has a, a benefit, really a survival benefit, or a, we call it fitness benefit, that in essence replaces the previous variant. And that happened with, if you may remember, Delta, when it first reported, it was first reported, very quickly became the dominant variant. And it basically replaced the alpha and the beta ones. And alpha and beta replaced the original strains that were coming out of Wuhan. This is something that you see, you know, iterative process. And Omicron has done the same thing, but just quicker. That does not mean that the other variants disappear. And more importantly, it does not mean that other variants that sometimes are very small in number could also mutate and lead to a new variant, yet a new variant that is not related, genetically speaking, to Omicron, and is going to be different in one way or another, even more transmissible, for example, which is difficult to propose, but it could happen, or, for example, um, more virulent. So we don't know what the future will await for us. Are all of these new variants due in part to the unvaccinated? Could we have prevented the Omicron if more people were vaccinated earlier, or, or is that unrelated? Because I think what's scary about the Omicron is that we're seeing so many breakthroughs. It seems like because we let these mutations go on for so long that now they're just reproducing as resistant strains. This is, again, a very important and interesting question. Uh, I don't like pointing fingers, uh, frankly. I think that we should all understand that we're in this fight altogether. You know? But to a certain extent, I would say to a large extent, the answer to your question is yes, unfortunately. The unvaccinated are a prime population for ongoing transmission. And as mentioned, during this ongoing transmission, the active transmission of the virus, both inside this country and outside of this country, that's where these new variants are being generated. If we were able to, tomorrow or a month from now, vaccinate 85% or 90% of the population in the world, this virus would, in essence, disappear. Yes. That is very hopeful. Yes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Well, since we don't know for sure what the future holds for us, how can we best protect against future coronaviruses? Should we be looking more at the public policy piece of this instead of just focusing on the next new treatment? You know, these pandemics are not completely unexpected. 
all of us, all the scientists, for example, we knew there was a pandemic that was going to come. It just happened that we thought it was going to be an influenza pandemic. There was a fair amount of work already um, dedicated to this, precisely waiting for that next pandemic, flu pandemic. It just happens that it was a coronavirus pandemic as opposed to a flu. But a lot of the things we know could work were put in place already, uh, and they were dismantled in the years before this happened. These are called zoonotic infections, meaning these are uh, pathogens that come from uh, wildlife, and it's a complicated yet interesting cycle uh, where there's likely more than one animal involved. There's mutations, viruses from two different animals that, you know, join together and, boom, create these new viruses. A lot has to do with that, how to manage zoonotic infections. That's the largest risk here. A lot of these policies are about, you know, regulations on avoiding all of these viruses to mix and match, and also for early detection. Any policies towards addressing these zoonotic transmissions in terms of maybe less environmental destruction, better treatment of animals. Are these being looked upon as a public policy uh, proposal in terms of fighting future coronavirus outbreaks? So with this extreme example I'm saying about organizing at a global level, the thinking goes into many different aspects of global organization where we can decrease or minimize the likelihood of a new pandemic occurring, and that has multiple elements, one of them being managing ecosystems, and it has to do with climate change, it has to do with humans encroaching into wildlife areas, trafficking of these wild animals throughout the world, etc. It has many different elements, obviously, but all of them have a common denominator of global cooperation and global coordination. And then, obviously, there's many other aspects, and there's a fair amount of preparation, discussion, and investments that will need to be, you know, dedicated. You may have heard a story that in, I think it was two years before this happened, there was a movement towards precisely controlling pandemics, and they came up with a price tag of about you know, I may be wrong with the numbers, but it was around $10 billion. And back then, this was in 2018 or 19, pre-pandemic, obviously all the governments in the world said, you know, this is a completely crazy figure. No one invested in, in that. And yet this particular pandemic has cost probably trillions of dollars. So it's really about these major decisions that are, you know, difficult to have, you know, accepted, and this is obviously something that has to be at a global level. But if we had invested $10 billion back then, <laughs> just two years before all this happened, we would have potentially avoided a lot of the suffering, a lot of the cost that we've been suffering since mm-hmm. then. So, to me, the thinking is at that level where we need to be proactive in imagining ways to avoid this happening again. No? Well, thank you. That wraps it up. Thanks so much for joining the show. Okay, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. I hope it was useful. That was USC Assistant Professor of Medicine at the Keck School of Medicine, Edward Jones Lopez. He spoke with Digital Village reporter Leilani Albano.
That's it for this episode of Digital Village. You can hear us archived on kpfk.org. And digitalvillage.org. Thanks for listening to Digital Village. I'm Rick Allen. I'm Leilani Albano. And we'll see see you online. online.